All right. So a couple years ago, uh, we were doing some devotions with our kids. And it was really, they were really fun. Um, they had some object lessons and some activities that went along with the devotions to help, you know, help you remember exactly what it is uh, that you were learning. And so one of them uh, called for a mousetrap. And so I went to Lowe's and I saw a rat trap. And I thought, that is so much better than a mousetrap. Bigger is better, right? Yeah. And so I was sitting there on the step, I know, right? I was sitting there on the step of the fireplace doing the illustration. Can you feel the tension? <laughs> feel the tension in the room. All right. Doing this, and I have not done a, a mousetrap in a long time. And so I was holding it incorrectly. And as I was pulling it back, it slipped smashed my thumb, and we almost had to do another devotional about the things that come out of your mouth. Um, it was painful. But I call this, it's a trap, because sin is, you know, it's the ultimate trap. And uh, what we're going to be talking about today is one of the worst. But first, let's get caught up, because last week was Mother's Day. And two weeks ago, we left off with Jesus talking to his disciples about the danger in anger. The danger in anger. And the danger is, Jesus said, if you have had anger in your heart towards your brother, if you've had hate in your heart, that is the same as murder. You're guilty of murder if you have had hate in your heart. And to the people of that day when they heard that, just like us today, we hear it and we think, that is crazy. Because who at some point in their life hasn't been angry with somebody, hasn't had that you know, feeling in your heart where you're like, man, I hate that person. You know, they get on your nerves. But Jesus is talking about the attitude behind the action. Just because we lack the will or the opportunity doesn't change the fact that there's something under the surface that's bubbling up that can be a huge problem. Uh, just like my little sump pump problem that I had underneath the surface. Everything looked great in the landscaping. There was this bush that was growing faster and healthier than everything else. And on the surface, it looked great. But underneath the ground, the roots were growing, causing a major problem. It could have been disastrous if it wasn't addressed. And we talked about how anger generally starts with little seeds, little seeds that get planted in the soil of our heart. And if we're not managing the soil in our heart, those little things can germinate and they can start to grow. And so we have that problem. But by the time they crack the surface, those roots are pretty established. And as they come out, Jesus starts talking about, he has this progression from anger to insults. Because now it's cracked the surface. Now it's coming out of our mouths towards other people. And he says, if you are insulting your brother, you can actually get hauled in front of the Supreme Court. Like that's how serious it is when you start defaming people and talking bad about them. And then lastly, he goes to, if you call somebody a fool, you're guilty of the fires of hell. Because what you're saying to them in essence is, you are a godless person and you can go to hell in essence. And Jesus is saying that is making you in danger of the fires of hell. And the last part we touched on was reconciliation, right? He said, if you are at the altar and you're bringing your gift and you remember that somebody has something against you, you actually need to leave it there and go be made right with your brother before you come back and try to worship. So if somebody, if I didn't see a whole bunch of people fly out of the room, 
last time we did this. So I assume that we didn't have a whole lot of people that had, um, but if, if the Holy Spirit brings somebody to your remembrance, you need to go make it right. Because coming in here and trying to sing the words on the screen becomes very difficult if you have a rift with somebody in your life. And you need to make it right immediately is the point that Jesus was making. He's talking about secret sins. And anger can be a secret sin. Eventually it's going to erupt and spill out onto other people if we don't address it. And that brings us to this week's section. Now, last week I mentioned that we were doing a topical sermon. We weren't going to stay in Matthew 5 because the subject matter did not lend itself to Mother's Day. And the wonderful and also terrifying part about preaching verse by verse through the Bible is that you can't skip over portions of Scripture that make you uncomfortable or that might be difficult to talk about. And today is one of those portions of Scripture. It makes people feel uncomfortable. So we're all going to be uncomfortable together, okay? We're all going to be uncomfortable. Uh, It's going to be like PG-ish. I don't think we're going to have any problems with everybody that's in the room. Jesus is talking about secret sins. Anger can be a secret sin, but if you ask people what comes to mind when you hear the phrase secret sin, most people would say lust, right? Lust, which leads to adultery, that kind of stuff. That's what people would talk about. Anger and lust are two of the most powerful influences over mankind. And it's happening today more than ever. This is the next attitude that Jesus addresses. So let's read this together. This is Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, lust, in my opinion, has contributed more to the degradation of our society and our culture than almost any other sin. Um, outside of pride, which is where every sin originates. And if we need proof of that, then our hypersexualized culture right now, our two biggest issues are gender identity, right? And the LGBTQ plus minus exclamation point hashtag agenda, right? That goes on and on. Those are the two biggest things because we are a society that has surrendered to sexual immorality. We have surrendered to that. It has become normal and, and it is having devastating consequences. We actually are promoting and celebrating lust and immorality in our culture. And USA Today, USA Today named woman of the year a transgender man. A man who is now a woman USA Today said, this is the woman of the year. That's the culture that we live in. Um, Purity and morality is laughed at and mocked openly in their society. Uh, In Romans 1, Paul is talking about the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you guys remember, when we went through the book of Habakkuk, um, he wrote the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul is writing that. And then he goes on to write about what unrighteousness looks like. And he goes on to list uh, things like godlessness, suppressing the truth, worshiping creation instead of the creator, uh, 
lusts, impurity, and at the bottom of that funnel, at the bottom of the list that he, that he talks about is homosexuality. That is the bottom. That's where we are circling the toilet bowl, so to speak, in Paul's opinion. Listen to verse 32. This is the last verse in chapter 1. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they approve those who practice them. That's the culture that we live in today. We live in a country where sexual sin is celebrated. And at the apex, at the top of that list, with lust and sexual immorality, uh, unfortunately is the porn industry. It just is. Last year, it generated over $12 billion just in America alone. $12 billion. To say that the statistics are overwhelming is a huge understatement. A huge understatement. It's a cancer in our country. And the technology of our day has made it immediately you know, accessible. And it is actually ensnaring a whole new generation of kids, giving them all kinds of distorted views about sexuality and about relationships. What we have now is a hookup culture, basically, where you can meet up with total strangers, have sex, and then afterwards determine whether or not you want to have a relationship with them. It's completely backwards. It's completely upside down. We've thrown gasoline on the fires of lust, and the repercussions are devastating. Some people never recover from the brokenness of lust. The devil promises satisfaction. That's what he does. He promises satisfaction, but what he's um, offering is a shortcut. He's offering you a shortcut, but all those roads end in the same place. They all end in hell. Now, when we talk about lust, it's generally pointed at the guys because that's where the majority of the problem originates. But I'm also going to talk to the ladies, also going to talk to the women, because while lust is a sin, causing to lust is also a sin. That's also problematic. So I'm going to talk to the women as well. And I'm not going to leave the youth out. I have a message for the youth too. So we are all in the collective boat together today, uncomfortable and rocking the boat, okay? All right. The Apostle Paul wrote two letters to the church in Corinth, and in both of them, he had to address the topic of sexual immorality. The Corinthians were a bit of a mess. They were a mess. And Paul was having to actually explain to them, this is what the Christian life looks like. Like, you can't just live in sexual immorality. You can't sleep around. That's not the way you live as a Christian. But they were heavily influenced by Greek culture. And Greek culture in that day said that biological functions are just that. They have no bearing on morality at all. It's like eating and drinking and sleeping and having sex is just part of that. Like that's just part of what you do. And so Paul was writing to them to correct that. Um, and that's what they leaned on to justify their behavior, the way they lived. Here's what he writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. He says, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord and the Lord for the body. Basically, you are not the sum of your biological functions. Those are going to go away. God's going to destroy those. You are, in fact, a spirit. We have a soul, and that's where we're going to be judged. Who we are on the inside is going to determine where we're going to spend eternity. And he goes on to say this, in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality 
um, sexual immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. How should we avoid lust? Immediately. Immediately. We should flee. Flee means now, like immediately. Um, Just like Joseph. We remember Joseph, right? The kid with the technicolor dream coat. God had elevated him to a place of prominence in the house of a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar gave him control of everything. He, Joseph ran the house. It says that the only thing Potiphar had to worry about was what he was going to eat that day. That's it. Joseph ran everything. But there was a problem because Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph. And time and time again, she would come on to him and try to get him to have an affair with her. And time and time again, Joseph turned her away. Until one day, she grabbed him forcefully. She forced herself on him, and she wouldn't let go. It says that he fled immediately, so much so he came out of his shirt. He, he left his robe there, and he got out of there. He booked it because he didn't want to be in a place that was going to cause him a problem. Now, it actually ended up becoming a problem because she lied about it, right? But we need to be that serious about lust and temptation because if we don't, it's not going to let go. It's not going to let go. You can't reason with it. Joseph didn't say, listen, I think this is a bad idea. You know, I, we really shouldn't think about this. No, he booked it out of there. He literally fought his way out of the room, leaving his shirt behind. There was once a tyrant who summoned one of his subjects into the courtroom, and he happened to be a blacksmith. And he said, listen, I want you to go make me chain." make a chain and bring it in. And so the blacksmith, he goes and makes a chain and brings it to the tyrant. And the tyrant says, make it twice as long. So he goes away and he makes it twice as long and he brings it back. And the tyrant says, now double it. And so he has to go back and he makes it twice as long and he brings it back again and shows it to the tyrant. And the tyrant says, good. Now guards, bind him with it hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. And that's what the devil does. He makes us forge our own chains of sin, and then he binds us with it, gets us all bound up as captives, and then throws us into outer darkness. That's what sinners are doing, whether it's adulterers or, you know, gamblers or drunkards. What they're doing, all sinners are forging their own chains that they're going to be bound with and caught up in. But thank God we have a, a, you know, a savior, We have a chain breaker. We sing that. Never going to stop singing your praise because he is the one that can break our bonds and free us and restore us. He'll save us from evil. Now, evil and sin are not the same word. They get used synonymously sometimes, evil and sin, but they're actually two sides of the same coin because evil will tempt us to sin. Evil tempts us to sin. Now, a thought or a glance by itself is not a sin. If, you just, if it's an accidental glance or you know, something that you see, that in itself is not a sin. But if we're lured away intentionally with desire, then lust turns into a sin. James writes this in chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, we're all going to be tempted, but the decision that we make in that moment is going to determine the outcome and ultimately, you know, our eternal destination if we, if we continue in that lifestyle. You know, David, David's sin with Bathsheba wasn't that he saw her from the balcony. The sin was, is that he lingered. He did not flee. When he should have turned around and walked back into the palace, he stayed on the balcony. And that glance turned into a thought. And that thought turned into a desire. And that desire turned into an action, which turned into death. It gave birth to death and sin. Because he murdered her husband, Uriah. And then the child that he fathered through that affair ended up dying as well. So it birthed sin and it birthed death. There's a saying, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. If you sow a character, you're going to reap a destiny. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit and reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. So the question is, how is your thought life? How is your thought life? Because that's what's going to affect your attitude and ultimately your actions. That's where it starts. Jesus is talking about hell and eternal punishment for those who choose to walk in this lifestyle. I mentioned that the church in Corinth had a real problem in this area. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, I'm skipping around a little bit here in chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now the progressive church today would tell you that the Bible does not address homosexuality. Paul disagrees, and so do I. He does address the topic. Um, All sexual sin is driven by lust. And, you know, people will say that the Bible does not address or define what sexual sin is. Let me define it for you, because it does. Sexual immorality is any act outside of the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. Okay? Any act that takes place outside of the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. And Jesus actually takes it up a notch, which is what he's doing with the crowd here, and saying it's not just the act, it's also emotional, it's also mental. Those could be forms of lust and adultery as well. So, okay. You're all still with me? Good. Nobody's running for the doors. (laughs) Knowing this information, ladies, time to talk to you all. You bear some responsibility. You bear some responsibility because if you cause men to lust, that is a problem. Tempting a man to sin is just as problematic as the sin that he might commit. The Bible's very clear on this point as well. It starts with our thoughts. And so what thoughts are coming into his mind when he sees you? Do you desire, here's the thing, do you desire to be looked at? Do you desire to be lusted after in causing men to sin? Are you dressing the part? 
for that to happen. Now, women are the main object when it comes to men's expression of lust. We know this. Women are objectified when we make them simply an object or a means to an end, to a sinful desire. And through advertising and through the entertainment industry, women have been turned into objects. Uh, I read a story just like two days ago about an advertising campaign in England by Adidas. So Adidas ran an advertising campaign in England, and they were talking about their sports bra line. And instead of talking about their sports bras, they were kind of talking about how, you know, hey, we have like 42 different styles, you know, because everybody's shaped differently. They actually had a grid, a huge grid that was just women, bare-chested women. That was the advertisement. Now, after some complaints, as you can imagine, that got pulled. And after the fact, they were like, oh, well, you know, we weren't like trying to objectify women. We really didn't think people would take it that way. But that's the culture that we live in right now that's desensitized people and created all kinds of false perceptions, false expectations, perceptions about how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to act. And just because it's popular doesn't mean that you have to participate. People asked us, people at work asked me, when COVID started, they would say, you know, how has this affected your family? And we, you know, I would tell them, we've chosen not to participate in all the craziness that COVID has provided. We chose not to participate. Now, that's not to say that it's not real. I understand COVID is real, okay? I understand that. But what I'm saying is look at the precautions and the seriousness that people took with that physical virus, and we don't treat lust or immorality or you know, adultery with any kind of seriousness in our country. And that is a very, Jesus is talking about it here saying, you are going to end up, you're, you're making a path to hell if this is the lifestyle that you want to walk in. We need to take it seriously. I'll never forget, years ago, I was doing a book study with a group of men. Mark was one of them. And we were reading through a book called Every Man's Battle. Now, if you're not familiar with the book, Every Man's Battle, it is a book that's written by two men, and it's written to men about their struggles with you know, sexuality and adultery and lust and all this kind of stuff, talking about the way men think and the way they behave when it comes to this topic not as an excuse, but to give them tools to fight this battle so that they can win in this arena of lust. And so one night I was out, I was somewhere, and I came back home. I had this book on my nightstand because I was reading through it, right? This book's for men. But I walked in the bedroom, and Alicia's reading the book. She's not supposed to be reading the book. (laughs) That was my first thought when I walked through the door. You're not supposed to be reading this book. And I won't forget the look on her face. Because her jaw was like down to her chest and her eyes were as big as saucers and she looked at me when I walked through the door like I had some kind of disease. <laughs> she was not, I mean, these guys are very blunt in this, in this book. They're very open about what it is and calling sin, sin. And from that point on, you know, the knowledge that she gained from reading through that totally changed her perception of modesty and how, you know, women present themselves to men because of the way that Satan attacks men and tries to destroy their lives, tries to take them out through this, capitalizing on lustful tendencies. Ladies, if you're dressing by design to gain a look or a glance from a man, you're making a big mistake. If you're purposefully tempting men to sin, that's just as bad. First Peter 3 Peter's talking to the women in the body of Christ. He says this, Do not let your adorning be external, 
the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He's saying, look, who you are on the inside is where beauty comes from. If you're just simply attracted, if, you, if men are attracted to you, if you're just trying to attract people based on how you look, guess what? That's all going away eventually. Eventually, it's going to fade. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised, right? That's what, we, that's what we read. Now, you might say, Nathan, I can't control what goes into men's heads. That's not my fault. Um, I wear this stuff because um, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel confident. I like to dress this way. I can't help what men do. Why should I be careful about what I wear, how I present myself? Later on in Paul's letter to his Corinthians, he's talking about food again and food that's offered to idols, because what would happen in that culture is there were all these temples and the priests would take the choicest cuts of meat. They would take the good stuff, right? And they would offer it in these rituals to the idols. And shockingly, the idols did not eat the meat. Okay, they must have been vegetarians. I don't know, but they didn't eat the meat. And so what they would do is after the ritual was over, they would take this meat and they would send it to the market and people could pick it up at a discount. They would sell it pretty inexpensively. So some people would go buy the meat. They didn't have a problem with it, but some Christians were convicted about eating this stuff because it had been offered to idols and they couldn't eat it. And some people were like, listen, it's not my problem. I didn't offer it to them. I'm just going to eat it. It's good meat. They're just idols. They're just wood and stone. I don't have a problem with it. Now listen to what Paul says about food, which is considerably less influential than the way we dress. This is 1 Corinthians 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died." Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when he's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, he's talking about eating meat. And if, me, if, if the food that we eat can make somebody stumble, how much more so the way that we present ourselves to others? Please think twice before you head out the door. Am I dressing with a desire... Okay, that's, it's an attitude of the heart, really, is what we're talking about. Am I dressing in a way where I want to get a glance or a notice and a new possibility that we can cause men to lust? Uh, part of the problem in our culture is we've been desensitized. We just have. Over the years, we've become desensitized, and it's become normal. It doesn't seem problematic. Uh, everything's become like very form-fitting and shorts have gotten shorter. We've walked through stores, and I've picked up things, and I'm like, I told Lisa, I'm like, what is this supposed to cover? These shorts are like that. It's crazy. That used to be a problem, doesn't it? It's not anymore. That's normal. And I understand that it's normal for the culture that we live in, but as followers of Jesus, we're called to live above that. I know you can't control what happens in men's minds. I get that. But just be aware that there are weaker brothers out there, okay, who might be tempted due to the way that you're presenting yourself. Okay, Jesus says, guys are all still with me, right? Okay. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is severe 
language, severe language of how important it is to battle this stuff. Now, Jesus is talking metaphorically, okay, because self-mutilation isn't going to solve or fix an evil heart, okay? But he's simply using this kind of symbolism to, to tell us this is how serious it is. But a person's right hand, a person's right eye symbolized uh, the best of their faculties. Okay, he's not discriminating against the lefties. Still loves you guys. But what he's talking about is that, you know, our, our best part, our best vision, our best skills to be worth giving up if it means staying away and not being chained to lust. Because eyes and hands are really the primary elements of adultery. They are. It's where it starts. And we should be willing to give up what we consider our best if it means keeping ourselves from temptation. Nothing is so valuable as to be worth preserving at the expense of unrighteousness, right? Nothing should be so valuable that we hold on to it at the expense of righteousness, okay? Not if it's going to cause us to sin. Let me put this in the NLT. This is the Nathan's translation, Nathan's living translation. No, Nathan's literal translation. That's what this is, okay? Give us some modern day application. If your computer downstairs causes you to sin, smash it with a baseball bat. For it's better for you to have no computer than for your soul to end up in hell. And if your smartphone causes you to sin, use it for shotgun practice. For it's better for you to have a dumb phone than for your soul to spend eternity in hell. Literally. That is modern application for what we're talking about today. And the word that's used here in the phrase causes you to sin, some translations say causes to stumble, The Greek word for stumble is scandalizo, from which we get our word scandalize. And it's the word that's used to describe the mechanism on a trap on which the bait is placed. Okay? This mechanism right here. This is scandalizo. Okay? That's what happens when we are not paying attention because it's a trap. Back then, what it would have been called a a deadfall trap. You know, you would have had a huge log or you would have had a big rock that was held in place precariously with two sticks under just enough tension to when an unsuspecting animal came by and stepped on that, they become a pancake. And that's what it's talking about. Those two little sticks, this little mechanism where the bait is placed is a scandalizo. That is the place where it causes to stumble, to sin. In Proverbs 7, Solomon is talking. He says this, Soon she has him eating out of her hand, bewitched by her honeyed speech. Before you know it, he's trotting behind her like a calf led to the butcher shop, like a stag lured into an ambush and then shot with an arrow, like a bird flying into a net, not knowing that its flying life is over. So my sons, listen to me. Take these words of mine seriously. Don't fool around with a woman like that. Don't even stroll through her neighborhood. Countless victims come under her spell. She is the death of many a poor man. She runs a halfway house to hell, fits you out with a shroud and coffin. Solomon here directs his advice to his sons. Youth, this is where you guys come in. Now, you may may not have known this, but a third of the Psalms, 11 of the 31 chapters, start off with my son. He is directing this advice to his sons. This is the wisest man who ever lived, and he has some advice that he wants to pass on to you. Don't learn from your mistakes. 
Learn from everybody else's mistakes. Don't make the mistakes yourself. Learn from other people's mistakes. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, but he made a bunch of mistakes. And a lot of them he made with women. We're told that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 wives. A thousand women Solomon had, and guess what? He forged a very long chain that bound him up, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. That's what happened. And he has other references in the Proverbs that say, listen to my words for his sons. And he's writing down life lessons that he doesn't want his sons to repeat. Learn from other people's mistakes. Saying, you're not missing out on anything, young people. You're not missing out on anything. Actually, you are missing out on some stuff. You're missing out on heartache. You're missing out on, you know, regret and grief and opening yourself up to all kinds of defiling things, images and words that are going to get into your head that you're never going to be able to get out. That's what you're going to be missing out on. And when you do miss out on those things, it's going to keep you on the path to life. You can do without it. Your future spouse can do without it. You know, if you're doing things today that you're going to be dragging into your future marriage, you need to flee from sexual immorality. Paul told Timothy, he said, flee from youthful lusts. Stay away from it. Do whatever it takes. Set things in place to keep yourself from it. So what's the solution? How do we resist temptation? Well, a good place to start is with the scriptures. Uh, When the actual devil appeared to Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him, he beat him back three times with scripture. He quoted Deuteronomy three times. So that's how he got rid of the devil, and he had to flee after Jesus spoke the words. But it wasn't just speaking the words, okay? Anybody can spout off scripture. It's about being submitted to the scriptures. You have to believe it, and you have to be submitted to it. It's not just about saying words. And there's an account in Acts 19 that speaks to the power of scripture if we're submitted to it. This is Acts 19. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord, Jesus, was extolled. When we submit ourselves to the scriptures, then we can wield the sword of the spirit effectively, with authority, if we're submitted to the scriptures. Otherwise, it's just words. And that's not... The devil can quote scripture, okay? He knows it, but he's not submitted to it. We need to be submitted to it. Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, I take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. I take every thought captive. Paul calls this spiritual warfare, okay? Our battles with lust are against demonic forces. They are the ones that are tempting us. They are the ones that are trying to trip us up. Their job is to get us distracted and to get your eyes off of the truth of God so that you will temporarily satisfy a lust and destroy your life. 
That's what they're trying to do. So we have to refocus. We have to refocus. Not only do we use scripture, but we also have to refocus our minds. Did you know that every thought you have is not yours? Every thought you have is not yours. It is their job. It's called flaming darts that they shoot at you. Have you ever been sitting around and you're like, where in the world did that thought come from? Especially when you're like praying or something like that. You know, you're like, where did that thought? That is not your thought. That's the enemy trying to put that in your mind. We know his schemes. It starts off in the mind. We know his plans. Listen, he does not have a lot of things in his arsenal. Okay, because the things that he's been doing have been working on mankind for thousands of years. But we're not ignorant of his schemes. We know what they are. So because we know what they are, we need to have a plan. We need to have a plan of action. Because when we don't have a plan, that's when we fail. People fail because they don't have a plan. And you might say, listen, Nathan, when the time comes, I'm going to be just fine. I'm going to rely on God when I get into that situation. No, you won't. Okay, if you don't have a plan to refocus yourself, to get back to the truth, you're going to fall in that scenario. We need to refocus. Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a woman lustfully. He made a covenant. We serve the God of covenant. We just sang it. The God of promises. We need to make a covenant, a promise with ourselves that when those thoughts come in, that we take them captive and we make them obedient to Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 8 helps us with this and refocusing our mind. It says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is of excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You have to throw those lustful thoughts out of your mind whenever they come in. You might say, well, what happens if they come back? You throw them out again. If somebody breaks into your house, you're going to do everything you can to throw them out. And if they come back, you're going to do it again. You're not going to say, okay, listen, you got five minutes. And then you got to leave. We don't do that. We're extreme with that. We need to do that when we're tempted. We need to refocus our minds. I find worship very helpful here, personally. Because when I'm worshiping, I find it very difficult to have lustful thoughts. Because it gets the focus off of me and onto the Lord when I worship. It shifts the focus off myself. If we just let the enemy run loose through our minds, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. We're forging chains that are going to bind us up. So scripture and then refocusing, having a plan, and then, of course, prayer, pleading for sovereign sway. Psalm 119 is a pleading prayer. And in it, the psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. So the psalmist knows that our eyes are like magnets. Our eyes are like magnets. They're drawn to worthless things all the time. All the time. The psalmist knows this. Depersonalized female skin is a worthless thing. Now, women are of infinite value to the Lord. But when we simply make women objects, when men do that, then skin just becomes depersonalized and it becomes a worthless thing. It's demeaning to women and it's destructive to men. So the psalmist pleads for sovereign sway. Turn my heart, turn my eyes, turn my will towards you. Turn it away from worthless things. If we put these things into action, 
We can win the battle with lust. God will take our wicked heart, a heart that has no righteousness in and of itself, and actually give us a new heart. Take the wicked heart and give us a new heart, one that desires his righteousness. Because if we fail to do so, Jesus says it's going to end in death. Lust is insatiable. It's insatiable. You guys can come back up. Um, The radio personality, Paul Harvey, tells a story of how the Eskimos would kill a wolf. Now, this account is kind of grisly, but it gives a really good um, explanation or portrayal of what lust and sin can do to us. It can be all-consuming, the self-destructive nature of sin. Okay, first what the Eskimo does is that he takes a sharp knife and he coats it in blood and then lets it freeze. And then he takes it out and coats it with more blood and then lets it freeze. And he does this process over and over until the blade is hidden. And then he buries that knife in the ground. He fixes it so it won't come out with the blade pointing up. And the wolf will come along, smell that, and go over and start licking the blade, right? He's licking the blood off the blade. And he starts to satisfy his thirst for blood by licking the knife. And eventually, right, his tongue kind of goes numb. When you're licking, you know, ice, the tongue goes numb. And he becomes more and more voracious as he licks this thing. And eventually it exposes the blade of the knife. And his lust for the blood that he's drinking, he doesn't even recognize that at that point it's his blood that he is being satiated with, right? that he's drinking up. And eventually, the Eskimo will find the wolf dead in the snow because his desire for blood consumed him and he died in the process. That's what sin does to people. People become consumed by their own lusts and only God's grace can keep us from it. Only God's grace can keep us from the wolf's fate. It's a serious, serious issue. Uh, Don't forge those chains. Don't mess around with that blade of sin. We know the devil's schemes. We know it. It starts in the mind. So have a plan to deal with it. Scripture, prayer, refocus your mind. Find a way to do that through worship. Otherwise, it can have deadly consequences. So... That is our uncomfortable conversation for today. It's a serious topic. It's one that's hard to talk about. It really is because it is so prevalent in our culture today. But that's the reason why it's important to talk about it. Jesus talked about it, so we're going to talk about it. It was a problem then. It's a problem today. And we're going to continue to talk about it. When it shows up in the scriptures, we're going to talk about it. And so if you are uncomfortable today, (laughs) next week, Next week, Jesus is going to talk about the subject of divorce. So we're going to talk about that as well. So I thought about just maybe adding that on to the end of this one, you know, like, and God hates divorce too. See you next week. But we're going to talk about it because Jesus talked about it. So again, these could be uncomfortable topics. Um, A lot of us have sinned in these areas, right? Just be open and honest about it. But we have one that redeems. We have one that forgives. We have one that covers. His forgiveness covers every sin you've ever done, are doing, or ever will do. When you place his life, your life in his hands, that's what he does. He can give us a new heart. He can renew our minds. 
That's what he does. There's forgiveness for all of it. But we still have to address it, right? Yeah, we still have to address it. Give you my worship. You still deserve it.